Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Ref Club Ask the Experts. I am Adam Powatic, and your other host today is Aaron Cameron. We are lenders with First National, as well as being hosts of the CRE Podcast. Our guest today is Courtney Ronaldo. She's manager of pre-sales for Yardi. But our topic matter is going to be around energy and buildings, managing government requirements, managing that cost. Of course, it's grown and grown over time. And nobody better suited to speak to it than Courtney. She's been at it for 20 years in this sector. The changes she's seen, I imagine, are extraordinary from the first days of her introduction to this line of work. Courtney, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're going to do a, like a dual purpose intro here. Typically, we like to get the background of the person we're speaking to just so we understand where they're coming from. But yours in particular, given what we're discussing today, you know, being energy management in buildings, I imagine we'll weave in nicely, you know, given the 20-year history. So if you can, please share you know, your background with us and also what the lay of the land was when you first started in the energy sector. Yeah, Sure. So as you mentioned, I've been in this world for about 20 years. I actually happened upon it, I guess you could say. I uh, was a young, fresh, in college, 19-year-old, looking for my first job outside of retail, I guess you could say, and uh, happened upon a company that was doing this strange utility billing thing. And I remember sitting, waiting for my interview, looking at the pamphlets they had in their office and seeing all this talk of submeters and energy and all of this stuff. And I thought this was almost like a made up thing. I didn't even realize that it was like an actual career and focus in the world at the time. Fast forward 20 years and a lot has changed since that time frame. I've learned a lot. I've done a lot. Everything from running operations teams and client services teams, implementing clients on these services, managing and supporting them day to day through to now being a little bit of a spectator, I guess you could say, on how the industry and the market is evolving in this regard. But it's been really exciting. You know, I think that if anything is going to change the world, so to speak, when it comes to usage and pollution and all of those things, energy is definitely an area that we should be focusing on. And it seems to be becoming a much more understood area of the industry, an area that people are much more focused on from a operations perspective and efficiency perspective. So it's been really exciting. But you know, back when I started focusing on energy, charging back for utilities, all of that was a dime a dozen. It was barely happening. Now it's, especially in the US, it's much more the norm than anything. And I would say that that's really becoming true in Canada as well. So a lot of change in 20 years. Yeah, no, I can't imagine. The real interesting thing here, and you've already touched on it, is every time you hear a conversation about climate change as it relates to real estate, I don't know the exact numbers, or maybe you do, but you always hear some astronomical figure that real estate is responsible for using on an annual global level. So your focus in this arena obviously is highly topical at the moment. Do you have visibility on to how impactful our industry is in that regards? Yeah, you're definitely right. It's hugely impactful. I think the last numbers that I heard were something in the realm of like 60 to 70% of all usage for electricity, gas, etc. is within our market and our vertical. So it's definitely something that we should be focusing on. And if we're going to make an impact on reduction and usage, if we're going to save the planet, so to speak, 
it really does start with our industry and focusing on our buildings that we're operating, whether they're multifamily residential or even commercial buildings. I mean, it's a huge drain on the overall usage for the world. Courtney, I think this is an interesting topic that I think a lot of our viewers, listeners will be really interested in. For my own sake, maybe let's just set some foundation for the conversation then. You know, if you go back 20 years, clearly there wasn't a lot of visibility on you know, environmental impacts. I know, of course, climate change was a thing back then, but it hasn't really picked up the mainstream common, what's what I'm looking for. It's, it's now clearly prevalent in everybody's you know, minds. What was it like 20 years ago? And maybe just talk through what changes you've seen up to this point, and then let's maybe then turn forwards and look at what we need to continue to do and how we can do it. Sure. Yeah. So 20 years ago, the way I kind of entered into the market was on utility billing, kind of the recovery side of utility expense. It was very new. It was very fresh. It was primarily focused in the U.S. for mobile home parks, manufactured housing type communities, and some multifamily buildings. But it was really just all about the money, right? Expense and recovering what can be millions of dollars for a building owner or operator a year. And so it was really focused there. Benchmarking and sort of the concept of analyzing usage, reduction, sustainability, conservation, those topics just really weren't at the forefront of anybody's thoughts or even the services that were being offered at the time. I would say about 10 years or so, not even 10 years, maybe six or so years after I first got into the industry, we started seeing kind of a shift a little bit, starting to focus on visibility and data and what you can get from existing systems, but also just the utility bills that you're getting from your utility providers on a monthly basis. And a new service sort of entered the market, utility invoice processing or utility expense management, you kind of hear it called different things. But it was all focused on receiving utility invoices, capturing data off of them, and then using that for analysis, for benchmarking, to be able to track the effectiveness of sustainability projects. But it was very uncommon, and it took some time to really gain some momentum, I would say. In the last 10 years or so, things have really evolved further, really where we are now taking that data and doing things beneficial with it. As we'll talk about some today, benchmarking and Energy Star benchmarking requirements, GRESP requirements, LEED certifications, all of that has really started blossoming in the last decade or so. And in some cases, there's requirements for it. We see that evolve and change almost daily now. Different cities, different provinces, things like that requiring benchmarking to occur for buildings. Not necessarily reduction in all cases, but at least benchmarking and reporting usage for your buildings. But the other thing that we're starting to see a lot more is focus on sustainability, true conservation. What can we do to make our buildings more efficient? Is it time to replace those inefficient windows and create better energy efficiency within the building? Do we need to change out our lighting to LED? Does changing to low-flow shower heads and low-flow toilets really make a difference in our consumption? And so we're seeing a lot more of that. I would say maybe five years or so ago in the U.S., maybe even a little bit longer, there was a lot of incentives being provided to clients and properties to invest in some of these things, right? Show that you've invested in low-flow shower heads and toilets and get a rebate or a discount on taxes. And so there definitely has been more of a focus. On the commercial side and in the commercial sector, 
We now see buildings from the ground up construction really focused on efficiency, using sustainable materials, all things that benefit the environment, reduce usage, reduce our carbon footprint overall. So that's a huge thing. And we see the products and the services that are being provided in the industry evolve to kind of match that focus and need. Everything from, again, visibility and sustainability tracking, all the way through to advanced systems that help to manage the operations of a building, tapping into their BMS and BAS systems to create efficiencies in their operations while keeping tenants reducing comfort calls for tenants and such. So it really is something that is evolving quite substantially. If you think of like that single family home type situation, who this day and age doesn't have a smart thermostat or smart locks in their house, right? Most of us are setting up schedules, managing our energy, whether it's just to reduce your bill or to be more efficient in how you're using energy or utilities in general. So a huge evolution. And I expect this to only evolve and change especially as benchmarking requirements become more prevalent and the requirements to meet the need, so to speak, are very specific, right? You must have a building that works as efficiently as X. You need to have an energy star score of Y or show this type of improvement over the next year, two years, five years. So I think that we're going to see a lot in this space, even in the next three to five years, but tons of change in the last 20 years for sure. Yeah, it sounds like it. We're going to get into some of the incentives. And, you know, I think every government, most governments anyway around the world have set targets and are looking for ways to incent. I, I think, I can't remember the number, but a significant amount of inefficiency exists in the commercial real estate community. Maybe just give an example. If you think about particularly in Canada, I'm sure it's true in the U.S. as well, where Courtney is. The whole country is dotted with 1960s era apartment buildings that were set up with just, you know, single line utilities and the landlord just pays the bill once a month. And you've got tenants that aren't incented to be efficient in their utility use, right? If it's really hot in the building or even if they have their own access to controlling their temperatures, it may be pump the heat, open the window and you're just there's no real incentive for our tenants, just for those that maybe not have captured it. I think Courtney was talking about her entrance into this industry was through the sub-metering of those units. Am I correct? So you're sub-reading those apartment units. Now, all of a sudden, that tenant is responsible for paying that bill. And so when they realize opening the window in the middle of the winter and pumping the heat is not an efficient use of your resources because you got to pay for it, it changes the way that those residents use their energy. And I think the, the same is true in commercial, right, Courtney? Like, I mean, maybe let's just talk through that a little bit, different asset classes. I think apartments is easy for everyone to visualize, right? If the person is paying for their utility bills, they're going to be conscious of how much it costs, how much energy they're using. In the commercial space, it's kind of a similar problem, right? At times, it's paid by the landlord. I know it's recovered typically through sort of a triple net lease, typical, but they only see it on an annual basis. They're not necessarily seeing that month-to-month cost. Are you seeing a change in that community, in that space, whether it's industrial or office, just to incent the user's to be more energy efficient. You know, multifamily utility billing and charging back has been around for around 25 years or so. It's now kind of the norm, whereas before it was just beginning. But with commercial, we're kind of seeing a similar trend. And I think one thing that's really interesting to make note of is by implementing a utility billing program, whether it's submetered usage that's being billed to tenants, some sort of a pro rata share or what have you, that just by implementing the program, period, owner-operators tend to see, at a minimum, about 20% reduction in overall building consumption. 
So the visibility is key to tenants. And sometimes the visibility is just a charge that they have to pay on a monthly basis versus something that they're being assessed kind of as a flat amount and then being essentially trued up at the end of the year to see if they used over or under or if the building used over or under what that allotment was. So it really is something that we're seeing a trend for. I actually had the opportunity to work with a very large owner operator here in the U.S. for years, and they are a mixed portfolio. They have tons of residential multifamily buildings, but also do construct and operate commercial and industrial buildings as well. And they really made it kind of a standard to require either through the lease with the tenant that a submeter be installed in their space prior to occupancy, or they would by default include it as an expense in the lease and stipulate that you would in fact be billed for your individual spaces usage. And they made that a consistent thing across their portfolio. And they had millions upon millions of square feet, hundreds of millions of square feet of commercial and industrial space and hundreds upon hundreds of units of spaces that were being leased to tenants. But they made it a norm. And as a result, they had some of the highest efficiency buildings in the country. And their tenants were some of the ones that, interestingly enough, were some of the longest occupancies that we see in the industry. You know, of course, when you're signing commercial leases, you expect to get five, seven, 10 years, but you may or may not renew after that period of time. They were actually seeing lots of leases being executed for longer periods up front, but then their prevalency of renewals were also increased. So not only did they get the experience and the benefit of reducing usage and providing that visibility for the tenants, but it was also increasing the length of stay of their tenants, which I think was a really interesting byproduct. And now you're talking the language of investment. And of course, that gets people excited for those kind of indirect benefits that you wouldn't immediately think of. Obviously, there's a few ways to increase building efficiency. And we just talked about correct incentivization structures, but of course, Building hardware is another way of doing it. You touched on replacing windows, but what's been the low-hanging fruit for improving energy efficiency from a building materials aspect over the last 20 years? And where do you think it can go in the future where we might see further gains? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think, like you said, low-hanging fruit are some of the easiest things to do and sometimes the lowest investments. If you don't already have low-flow toilets, shower heads, if applicable, and things installed, that's definitely an easy entry point and some significant savings up front. Same thing with lighting and LED retrofits. One thing to keep in mind with the LED retrofits, which I was actually talking to a client just the other day about this, they put a huge investment up front, completely retrofitted their building, but there's different settings with lighting, right? You know, the brightest lighting, adjustable, things like that. And so in a year's time after the retrofit and upgrading the lighting, they didn't see the reduction in usage that they expected. They actually saw in some cases not necessarily an increase, but kind of a plateau. What they realized is when they installed this lighting and then had everything kind of controlled by their BMS or BAS system, they hadn't adjusted the lighting settings. So whatever investment you're making, make sure that you understand what sort of adjustments might need to be made to standard operating procedures and systems. Some of the other things that I think are not always thought about, if it's working, if a space is somewhat cool in the summer and warm in the winter, you don't necessarily think about some of the basics when it comes to HVAC systems and chiller plants. I think we all understand, you know, if you have a car, you have to change the oil. When you have these systems, they require maintenance and upkeep and keeping on top of those systems, ensuring that they are getting the service in whatever schedule is appropriate for that equipment is a huge impact and can really reduce overall consumption of a building and waste, which is really what we're focused on here, right? 
The next piece, which, you know, starts kind of ticking up in the investment ladder is windows, especially in older buildings. And if you think about a building, sometimes you don't necessarily even have to completely change out the windows in every section of the building. Sometimes it's thinking about what portion of the building is getting the most sun directly on it. What portion is shaded the most? Units in the middle, in middle floors, things like that aren't necessarily going to be where you're losing or wasting a lot of energy. End units, corner units, units that get a ton of sun or a ton of shade. Those are really great places to focus investments in and start a project if you don't have the time, money, or just not ready to invest in that type of a change. But those are all some things that are based on where you're focused and what level of investment you can make, all easy ways of jumping in. And the last thing I would say is identifying which buildings need these types of changes, which buildings you have that maybe are not running as efficiently as they should be all starts with visibility and data. And so if you don't have an energy management strategy in place today, meaning gathering data off of your utility invoices, pulling data if you have it from your BMS or BAS systems and analyzing it, whether it's a manual process or you have a system or a solution in place that allows you to sort of manage by exception, these are really important things and they help to focus your investments into the appropriate places and also help you to see the ROI. So before you start even changing out the lighting or replacing windows, I would definitely say make sure that you have a energy strategy in place and that data is something that you have available to you, which is these days quite an easy thing to get. Courtney, what's BAS and BMS stand for? (laughs) Good question. So BAS, BMS, those are basically building automation systems. So larger, you know, commercial buildings typically run off of these like main brain type systems, right? The control airflow and temperature and static pressure and all of these things that control how efficiently a building's working, how hot or cold the space is. And they're basically the brain of any large building. They don't necessarily exist in every building, especially older buildings don't always have them. But most new buildings, pretty much all new buildings are going to have some sort of a building automation system in place. So then let me capture my thoughts here because I actually had no idea what a BAS or BMS. I don't know if that's an American thing or not. Go to the ROI comics. I think that's where a lot of people will get intrigued on the fact that you're not doing this out of the goodness of your heart to save the planet. These are actual investments that end up saving money in the long run and providing a return. I mean, you've mentioned window replacements is an easy one. I've heard that roof replacements are a good one, particularly in colder climates in Canada where it prevents a lot of hot air from rising out the top. What are the kind of things that you're typically seeing clients looking for as far as the best return? And maybe let's focus on industrial to make it easy because you you could probably talk for days about all the different asset classes. But using an older industrial building, let's say I've got a 27-foot clear 1970s era industrial platform. What are the best things I could do to increase my returns? Yeah, it's a good question. So like you said, roofs can be a thing. A lot of times when you're thinking of that type of an industrial building, it's insulation. Insulation has changed immensely over the last couple of decades. And some older buildings have little to none, especially in the roof area. You can replace a roof, but if you have no insulation, then you're probably losing just about as much energy and heat and cool space as you are creating. So insulation is a really big thing. When you're looking at an older building, typically you find systems that just don't work as efficiently unless they've been upgraded substantially in the last 10 to 15 years. So when you're looking at those types of buildings, I would start looking at the boiler and heating and cooling systems. 
a lot of times those are still quote working, but are not working efficiently. And those can be a huge drain on usage depending on the structure of the building, right? Is it one large building that's serving one tenant in an industrial, you know, manufacturing type environment? Or is it sort of segregated and segmented into multiple tenant spaces? When you talk about thermostats and smart thermostats, that's also a really key area to focus on. And there's lots of different solutions in the market where you can provide these devices and such to the tenants to be able to control themselves. But what we're seeing a lot now also is a bit more control over those types of devices through the owner or management groups as well. So allowing some flexibility for the tenants in the space to make changes and adjustments, but also controlling it. So you can't turn the air conditioning down to 60 in the middle of summer. Maybe the lowest you can go is 72 or 74. So small things like thermostats and such not only provide visibility, but also a little bit of additional control. But older buildings, you have to start kind of thinking ground up, right? What sort of materials were used when the building was first created? Have we looked at weather stripping recently, right? We all have windows, we all have doors in our buildings, whether they're, you know, roll up garage type doors or the standard, you know, swing open doors. We need weather stripping. We need to really focus on leaks from the outside coming in or from the inside going out. So weather stripping, caulking, all really easy ways of, improving the space, reducing usage and waste and increasing efficiencies of buildings. But for a building that is 30, 40 years old at this point, it's really time to start, if you haven't already, to looking at some of the larger mechanical systems, heating and cooling systems, things that actually operate and control the buildings, and perhaps scheduling or planning for some investments on that. So we've talked about upgrading older buildings, but what about brand new builds and some of the more I'll say the word cutting edge, but maybe at this point they aren't. But talk about solar panels, deep water cooling systems, geothermal, rooftop gardens, some of the stuff that represents a, you know, a real shift in the way people are building buildings. So what's your view on those? And what do you see even beyond that time horizon? What's the coolest stuff in the future going to look like for improving energy efficiency in buildings? Yeah, Well, you know, I think the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, so to speak, is that we're all sort of off grid and creating our own power and water and filtering through our own waste and stuff. But I think we're a fair amount of time away from that. But I think that the investments that we're making now are extremely valuable. What's interesting, you know, so I live in Colorado right now. Years ago, probably about 10 years ago now, I was living in Portland, Oregon, And there's huge areas of redevelopment and sort of revitalization there. And one area was doing exactly what you just stipulated, putting in these extremely efficient, sustainable buildings, LEED certified right out of the gate, have these really unique leases in place that we're talking about tenant commitment and responsibility up front versus what it looks like through the term of their lease, and really focused on sustainability, efficiency, recycling. I mean, these buildings were just any sort of new innovation that you could think of were installed and the tenants were paying a premium for it. And it sounded and seemed crazy 10 years ago. Sort of cool, right? You have that rooftop garden, you're generating your own power, you're filtering your own water, whatever that might be. Those are really amazing things on paper, but what sort of benefits are you actually seeing? And you fast forward now 10 years to the same street, the same area in Portland, Oregon, and you cannot rent a space in this area because the whole area is just so extremely focused on conservation and reducing waste and usage that it is getting a premium, 
not only for the spaces, but these tenants that are in these buildings will not leave. So while I think that the effectiveness and efficiencies gained with these brand new buildings with this amazing technology going into them is fantastic, it's sort of like one of those interesting things, like I mentioned earlier, where the byproduct of it is not what you would necessarily expect. You now become kind of a sought after property and one that your tenants don't typically want to move from because there's so much benefit and there's so much control that they have over sort of the outcome of their business and what they're operating from a consumption and a usage perspective. So I think that people and the industry as a whole are becoming more sophisticated. We definitely have tenants and residents, depending on which side of the street you're on, that are seeking out these types of properties. In some cases, it's a requirement, not a nice-to-have type situation. So while the investments may be relatively steep up front, the ongoing benefits and the ROI that you're getting from these investments are huge, not only for your business, but at the end of the day, also for our world and our environment. I mean, that's a good segue, Courtney, maybe to the next line of questioning, because we're kind of tiptoeing around just the ESG concept and define that however you'd like. But every organization now has an ESG strategy. They have it embedded in their policies. It's now getting tied to green bonds and cost of capital, whether you're a landlord or a tenant, being able to say that you're in a lead platinum building or a GRES certified building or star, whatever the incentive may be. And maybe let's go there. When we talk through GRESB, what it means, what it stands for, what their angle is versus leads versus star. I mean, there's so many of them. Are there ones that stand out? Are there others that are better than others? I mean, what's the approach? Because I get confused by it, quite frankly. I think the message when it comes to ESG and benchmarking in general is that there's sort of a different flavor, so to speak, for everyone. And the most prevalent, the most commonly known and understood benchmarking solution out there and or requirement is Energy Star, right? Who hasn't gone to a hardware store and seen on a new refrigerator or a new washing machine or whatever it is that they're looking for, those little Energy Star blue stickers? It's a commonly known and understood sort of recognized logo. Not everybody really understands what it means. And when it comes to Energy Star benchmarking, benchmarking in general, that still is sort of a unknown for a lot of people and a lot of organizations. But benchmarking as a whole is really focused on data, understanding the usage of a building, understanding what is normal for the type of asset that you're operating and what is abnormal. And what we're seeing in the U.S. and Canada is a huge expansion of the requirements for benchmarking. It could be specific to something like Energy Star. In Ontario, we have a EWRB that's required, basically an Energy Star benchmarking requirement. But basically, you're taking a lot of data for your buildings, typically from your utility invoices or the utility providers that support your building specifically, and populating that into a website or submitting it through an annual report like Fres. But it's providing data about what is our usage like and what type of building do we have. So part of the setup with these benchmarking solutions and with ESG is understanding how your building operates, what sort of systems you're running. Do you have a chiller plant? Are you running HVAC systems? Are you a mixed use building, commercial, industrial, office space, multifamily, right? There's different usage types. And the various organizations that run these programs are basically creating benchmarks with all of the data that's being submitted and establishing essentially baselines for what is normal versus abnormal type usage. And like with Energy Star, you get a score. 
you know, zero to 100, essentially, and closer to 100, just like when you're in school or university, the better, right? And that's kind of a big focus. Boma Best is really prevalent in Toronto. Energy Star is sort of expanding throughout Canada, as well as the US. And as I mentioned, EWRB is a mandate in Ontario. What we're seeing is that most states, provinces, etc., are starting to roll out these requirements. They typically provide a little bit of notice. So they'll communicate something like, in the next three years, you're going to be required if you are 100,000 square feet or more in this type of a building to submit your energy usage data and the statistics and details surrounding your buildings. Initially, a lot of times we see that this is just a requirement to submit the information. But what we tend to find over time is that the requirement then evolves to where you actually have to have a reduction in usage and show increased efficiency with your buildings. And in some areas like here in the U.S. and New York, there's actually really steep penalties for either A, not submitting your data at all, or B, not being within what is considered the normal range for your building type. So there's a lot of incentives, not necessarily money or rebates coming to owners and operators with the benchmarking goals in mind, but more so on the penalty side. If you are not benchmarking when there's a requirement, there's a penalty. If you are benchmarking and submitting, but you aren't meeting the appropriate levels or guidelines for your building type and asset class, then there can be penalties. So we see this expanding and developing all the time just from a regulation and regulatory requirement. Is one submission type better than the other? I wouldn't say necessarily, no. There's different kind of industry standards and requirements. I think everybody loves to have, you know, I'm a Energy Star premier building or a lead platinum building. But at the end of the day, it's all about energy, sustainability, reducing our carbon footprints and becoming more efficient in the way we operate. One of the things that I haven't really mentioned either is that we also are seeing a huge expansion on the loan side with green financing. I think an area that you guys are probably much more engaged with than I am even. But these green loans and financing provide huge incentives through interest rates and other things in the loans for these buildings. But in order to actually qualify for them in many cases, there's a benchmarking component. In a lot of cases, you must submit data either to the lender directly or through something like Energy Star's portfolio manager website. And in a lot of cases, the first year or two, again, with these loans are just simply submitting the data. But then over time, you actually have to show and communicate changes and things that you're implementing to reduce usage and reduce waste at your buildings and then show through the data the reduction that you're expecting to see. And so there's lots of different ways to think about it, but this is something that I think we're going to be hearing a lot about. For example, I was just talking to a colleague earlier today who mentioned that in British Columbia, we expect that by next year, potentially there's going to be a mandate province-wide for Energy Star and benchmarking. So things that are not yet required, I think could very, very quickly become so. And really getting a handle on benchmarking kind of across the board is going to be really valuable. And as you mentioned, having an energy strategy is key. This is much more common on the commercial industrial side. Multifamily has lagged behind a little bit. We are starting to see companies create, implement, communicate their energy strategies. We're starting to see energy managers and energy analysts being brought on as permanent employees at organizations. But ideally, we need to see that 
more consistently across the board if we're going to really make an impact and uh, reduce the way we should be. So lots of things coming, but it's also one thing, final note on the topic is it's a very specialized kind of experience and knowledge, energy in general, and for sure being able to support any sort of a benchmarking requirement. And one thing that you should all know that is not always completely understood up front is that having your buildings appropriately categorized, structured, and reported on is a key factor in what type of score you're going to achieve, whether that's, again, through Grez or Energy Star or what have you. Having things set up and reported properly directly impacts the score and the way your building is going to be rated. So if you do not have an in-house specialist, I would either look for one (laughs) or look for a company who can support you in this arena. I myself am not somebody who is setting up and creating those regular submissions for Energy Star for benchmarking in general. And you probably wouldn't want me to be the person that does that. Somebody much smarter than me and who does it day in and day out is probably better served with that. Courtney, I think you're being modest, but I do appreciate the candor. Courtney, clearly there's a lot of reasons why people should be paying attention to the energy profile of their building, whether that's regulatory, whether that's chasing incentives, whether it's you know an economic reason. And as you just touched upon, you know, people, even if they aren't paying attention to it now, will be forced to you know, over the coming years. So let's talk a little bit about the Yardi platform and how you manage that aspect of a building's performance. I mean, obviously, Yardi's got a very comprehensive software package for building owners, but can you focus in just on the energy relevant aspect of it and you know what you're doing to make this easier for owners? Absolutely. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's really unique about Yardi and what we're doing in this space is that we're really kind of a one-stop shop and we're completely built in for Yardi Voyager customers. So if you are running a Yardi system, then energy solutions through Yardi should be almost a no-brainer. It's built completely into your system, full visibility, full transparency, whether that's on the invoice and utility invoice processing side, all the way through to full automation with your building automation or building management systems, those BAS or BMS systems. So it's a really comprehensive solution. Yardi does not offer software for this. So we're not going to offer you a product that then you have to, again, be an experienced, skilled energy professional in order to use. It is something that is supported start to finish, whether it's setting up of these services, managing of them day to day, month to month, or even supporting you during, for benchmarking purposes, annual submission. So very comprehensive, supports you A to Z. And it can also help, I don't know if prevent is the right word, but prevent you from having to add staff to support this type of a need within an organization. So you can outsource this to experts who know the industry, who know these products, and services, and really will work as an extension of your organization, but you don't have to pay their salary, right? So there's sort of a benefit there. Yardi does support the most basic of energy management needs, all the way from invoice processing and data gathering through to recovery and billing back tenants or residents. But we also offer very sophisticated advanced solutions. Just entering into the space, gathering data, doing recovery where applicable, can already make an impact on the usage and the waste that you're experiencing at a building or a property. Getting into some of the more advanced solutions like our occupant engagement dashboards or meter insights where you get real-time data and can present it. Again, visibility is key. If you don't know, you can't make changes. So providing that data to your tenants is really important and systems. 
We also have systems, as I mentioned a little bit ago, kind of reference to them, that can actually work alongside your building automation or building management systems, those BAS and BMS systems, actually looking at how they're working today, notifying you of faults, notifying you of potential issues with the system and the way the building is operating, but also helping to run those buildings in a way. We have a more advanced solution that really focuses on helping to look at your building in almost like 30-second increments, looking at fan speed, air pressure and temperature, things like that, to really make sure that your buildings are working efficiently without sacrificing tenant comfort. So whether you need the most basic of support in gathering data from your utility invoices, getting it pulled together and submitted through Energy Star or other benchmarking requirements, all the way through to the really advanced systems that help to actually operate and manage your building operation systems, Yardi really is kind of a one-stop shop. And remember, it's all built into your system. So one interface, one place to go for data. And we really have kind of built our platform on the type of focus and strategy of manage utilities by exception. If you have pages upon pages and spreadsheets upon spreadsheets of data Unless you have somebody who's specifically designated and focused on energy management and sustainability, that data is probably just going to go unused. Even if you have that person, if there's too much data and there isn't enough focus on areas that need attention, they can get bogged down and not see things that actually need somebody to drill into a little bit more deeply. So we've really kind of structured the way our systems work on this managed by exception principle. So alerting your teams and staff to items that are happening now or have happened recently so that you can dive in, make changes, and control usage and expense before it gets out of control. So very comprehensive solution. I could probably talk about that topic for another couple hours, but I think that gives you a little taste. Unfortunately, we've only got about eight more minutes, so we'll have to <laughs> keep going. I have a, more of a personal question, Courtney. As you're going through this role, and I think you said you're pre-sales manager, so you're getting engaged with clients, or maybe you've got a sales force that you're working with, how often do you come across real estate owners that go, yeah, no, I'm just not interested? And how frustrated does that make you? Because we're just talking to you for the last 45 minutes. Clearly, it's something you're very passionate about. I didn't need to be convinced. Like I knew that this is something that we just have to be focused on. It's not like, again, like I mentioned before, we're not doing this out of the goodness of our hearts. It truly is a way to increase your yield. So it seems like a no-brainer. But you must come across the owners that go, nah, that's not for me. How frustrated does it make you? And how do you combat that? What's the next layer of, no, 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 I'm going to change your mind. Yeah, so I do. In my role now, I talk to clients every single day. And I would say almost 50% of what I'm talking with clients about are energy solutions in general. I would have to say almost, you know, in a very positive way, I don't encounter a lot of clients these days that are saying they don't care about energy management or they don't care about the usage or waste at their buildings, that has definitely been a trend that has changed. I do still encounter it from time to time, but I would say that in most cases, it's a lack of experience or education on the topic. It's not a general distaste or I don't care about this space. It's more about, well, I don't really understand the benefits of that. And I'm not really sure how to even engage upon this. And I would say that that's probably the biggest roadblock for some owners and operators is just not even knowing how to create an energy management strategy and how to start getting the data that they need to be informed and to start making changes. And so the way that I usually talk with these clients and start the conversation, I guess, is really starting with education. 
like we talked about at the very beginning, you know, what sort of impact does the usage of your buildings and our industry in general have on the overall usage throughout the world? And if we are focused on reduction and sustainability, what kind of an impact can that have? And then from there, we start talking about operating expense and the fact that utilities is one of the largest controllable operating expenses that you will have. So if you don't care about saving the world or getting really green tenants in your spaces who care about these things also, think about the cost associated because this is definitely one of the highest controllable expenses that you will have. And if you can get a handle on areas that you need to focus in on and start making little changes that then you can track savings on and such, I would say the proof is in the pudding. So usually just helping them understand the ease of entering into the space, partnering with a company like Yardi, where we will hold your hand and walk you through the entire process A to Z, providing recommendations and feedback is a great place to start. And if you don't care about saving the world, then you probably care about your pocketbook. And that's definitely an area that we can help you out with when you're creating and managing an energy strategy. Yeah, it's interest costs, taxes, and utilities or operating expense are the major costs. And I can just, I mean, of course, I have no idea to know if this is true or not, but it feels like on the debt side, as you kind of indicated, we're going for more and more down that road. I think there are more tax incentives coming if there aren't already in certain jurisdictions. So getting ahead of this, not only controlling your operating expenses, you're probably going to end up saving some interest and some tax benefits in the long run. So I can see that you've got all sorts of tools in your toolbox to convince people that this is the right strategy going forwards. I think, Courtney, we're out of time. Unfortunately, we only got about 10 minutes left. So Courtney, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Really appreciate your insight. Very, very interesting topic. And I find it really interesting that you're 20 years in now, and I'm sure it was hard for the first 15 years. And the last five years, it's starting to get a lot more entertaining because everybody's like, yeah, no, this is important. You're right. I need to take this seriously. It'd be cool to have you back in a couple of years just to see how much more momentum this topic has picked up. And I love the vision that we're all going to end up being off-grid. Every building is going to be independent of each other and you're generating our own energy and our own water. And I think that's a great vision to have. I don't know, is that 10 years or hundred years away, but somewhere in between probably, right? Yeah, probably. Well, hopefully closer to the 10 year mark, but definitely something I think we will achieve at some point. But this has been fun and super exciting. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Cordy. So reminder to our Ref Club members. Ref Club members, stay tuned. We're going to jump into our unplugged Q&A. For everybody else, thanks for participating. See you soon. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I discuss the conversation that just went down. Anytime, Aaron, that we get a topic that we have not covered in a meaningful way, not that I don't like talking about cap rates and supply chains and you know, things like that, but we do, or, or return to office or any of that, but we do talk about it quite a bit. Anytime we get you know, fresh meat in terms of content, I, I, I quite like it. And this would fall in that category. We've not done a deep dive on you know, energy management and buildings. And uh, I thought we had a great guest for it. I mean, she definitely is knowledgeable, you know, 20 plus years in the biz. So I, I thought it was, it was, you know, pretty interesting. I mean, it, it triggered a couple of memories for me from previous times energy had come up. And the one I'm going to reference specifically, not to slight our, our partner, the real estate forums, this has not been as a slight for them. It's just the reality of the situation at the time. I remember being at a forum in the prairies, either Winnipeg or uh, Saskatchewan, I can't remember which. And it's about 2013. And there's a panel talking about who cares about greening buildings. 
And the panel basically said that unless you're a top 100 blue chip company with a very public image to worry about, that tenants just do not care about that in regards to a building. And you know, that was 2013, so it is a while ago, but it's not like we're talking about something from the 50s that was you know, probably within a whole bunch of our listeners' you know, working lifetime. And so it is interesting to see like, such a shift in a relatively short period of time. Well, and even just use the like the term ESG. Like, I don't think I need to define what ESG is anymore. Versus, like, just maybe two years ago, when you said the words ESG or the letters ESG, you'd have to say that stands for environmental, social, and governance, and it's a thing that's coming through sort of you know policies and that. And you know, now it's just you know, it's no longer just something you have to build a policy for you know, shelve it. it. It's something that, you know, you have to walk the walk, talk the talk, so to speak. And this follows, like, it's the exact same thing as you're indicating. You know, one of the things that I found interesting, and it, it maybe just, it, it, I thought was curious, or I guess not curious, but just one of the benefits sometimes of having sort of an American perspective is that at times I feel like, you know, it's always that old adage that they're 10 years ahead of us. And I, I don't know if that's always true in certain areas, but it felt like, when she was talking to her, talking about clients that she deals with and just working with their buildings, she kept saying BMS and BAS. And I think at some point you and I were like, hey, hold on. <laughs> That's clearly not something. In, in, and maybe maybe you and I as lenders were just ignorant to it and our owner operator listeners are fully familiar with it, but it didn't, I don't, it doesn't feel like it, right? Like that they've more integrated technology where it's more about automation of your systems uh, in the US now than it is yet in Canada. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just reading the tea leaves wrong. But very curious that, you know, what she was talking about was just there's really simple ways to program or improve the software that runs your buildings to save money, right? And it's whether it's, you know, parking lot lights being dimmer at night when it, no, no, when no cars are in the parking lot or lights turning on as people walk through the building or whatever it may be, right? There's ways to really enhance the operations of your building through software automation, I thought that was a really interesting angle. Well, and given where cap rates have been, you know, pretty universally across the country for the last number of years, you don't just squeak out that much more NOI to have a dramatic effect on the overall value of your building. Especially, if, you know, it's great if you bought a building 50 years ago and it's just, uh, you know, spewing out cash. But if you're buying a building now in a low cap rate environment, you've really got to work to get the, you know, every dollar you can out of it so you get a respectable return. And this is how you do it. I mean, you know, the market's going to part, you know, largely dictate your income growth, but uh, expenses you can have a direct effect on right now. And, and you referenced, of course, the building maintenance system and building automation Sorry, system. I said building <laughs> management system, building maintenance system. That's right. Yeah. And for those, I got to think that IoT, you know, I love the word, love the concept. I don't know how much I see it in my daily life, but the Internet of Things in buildings over a five or 10 year time horizon would just multiply the ability of buildings to effectively run by leaps and bounds. You know, it always feel like Aaron and I have talked about this a couple of times, both on and off recording, that we always feel like we're on the precipice of some big leap forward in terms of the way we're going to live our lives from a technological aspect. And you know, I'm, I'm saying that again now from IoT, but I think that, that there is a near term where we do see a, a vastly different building system. Well, you and I did a podcast on, you know, the impacts of blockchain on real estate, I think back in like 2017, thinking it was just around the corner, you know, four and a half years later, and it's still not here, but it's coming. I promise it's coming. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's a good point. And Courtney made it multiple times. I mean, the reality is everybody's so focused on the top line revenue, right? And how to, how to drive, how to drive those rents. 
but you can make a huge improvement in the valuation of your property by focusing on the other side of that equation. And I think sometimes that gets lost. I sometimes just say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Operating a building is the easy part. It's really about, you know, getting your rents maximized and, and, and getting the right tenancy or whatever it may be. And as a result of, you know, I think our, the green push, quote unquote, you know, around the world, it's becoming more obvious that by focusing on that second part of the equation, you can actually drive more revenue also because tenants want to be there. Just like you indicated back 2013, tenants didn't care. But like Adam and I live at work at First National. Our president, Jason Ellis, former podcast guest, just announced, you know, we're moving into a lead platinum plus building. And I think that matters, right? Like people, people care about that, not just our executive team, but our employees, right? Like they want to know that they're operating in a building that's focused on these things. And it's just the reality of the world now in 2021. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll, um, to your point about valuation, I've, I've got a really basic example about utility management. This is, <laughs> this is probably not what, you know, what, what Courtney does. Obviously, she's focused, focused on energy, but super simple example. I was working with a borrower a couple of years ago. He bought a building for just you know, a few million dollars. It was not many units. It was an apartment. And a year goes by and a tenant comes to him and says, hey, before the building sold, I filed numerous complaints to the landlord about this significant leak I had going on and it still isn't been solved. And so he goes and he's a responsible landlord. He jumps on it and solves it. And afterwards, and you know, with more billing cycles going on, he determined that that leak was costing about $5,000 a year. So yes, he lost out in $5,000 a year, which is unfortunate because of course that'd be just to go straight to NOI. But that previous owner that ignored it was selling the building. So you go and throw a 375 cap onto an additional five grand and he left $130,000 in final sale price on the table. You know, that is a significant amount of money, especially when the total sale price of the building was, I, I can't remember exactly, but maybe $3 million. So very basic, simple example. Obviously, we're talking about things that are much more complicated than that. But the perfect example that if you do look at you know, pushing the boundaries on the technological aspect of these buildings and drive down your expenses, it results in a real growth. And if you're doing it to a $100 million asset, all of a sudden you're talking about potentially millions of dollars more, uh, more value in your, in your property. So a very simple example that you can extrapolate out to a much larger universe. Anyways, I think, I think that's probably exhausted our knowledge of, of energy management. Our guests have to come back for the after show. To- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, and, and thanks to Courtney. I mean, it was a great interview. And like you started off the top, we love when we have things that are outside of the norm. Right? And that was uh, very informative and looking forward to having her back on again next year. Yeah, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next one. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.